Hi, this is Corey McRae, the senator for the 45th Legislative District, and you're listening to the Condoy Street Podcast, my go-to source for the latest news and insight on state and local government in Maryland. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, it's Thursday, November 5th in the afternoon. As we record today, we are recording remotely. And Michael, I don't know about you. I'm still trying to catch up on sleep. I was up late on Tuesday and into the morning on Wednesday, obviously for election night. But <laughs> how are things holding up on your end? Are you are you caught up on sleep? I doubt it. <laughs> um uh, good to good to plug in with you, Kevin. Even even if it's remotely, um, I don't know. Is election night still a thing? That used to be a thing, but now I feel like it's more of an election week or month or season. I I don't know. Heaven forbid this goes on and on and on. But uh, yeah, still still working on that catch up on sleep, which they say you really can't do. No, and, and that's fair to say. I mean, really, we've had an election season when it comes to voting, right? And so it's only fitting that now it's pretty much election week as we wait to tabulate the votes. And today we will be discussing the 2020 election. We'll focus on state and local results here in Maryland. We'll also get into some intriguing county-specific ballot questions and take a look at some interesting policy issues that were on the ballot in other states and how those questions may ultimately influence Maryland policymakers. And to help us walk through all of this, we have with us today MAKO Policy Associate Drew Jabin. Drew, how are you today? Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on again. I'm doing well. I did not stay up late, so I feel great. <laughs> Definitely seems like the smart play in retrospect. Right. So, so, so Drew and Michael, first of all, again, we are recording on Thursday afternoon. We do not yet have from the State Board of Elections a complete set of numbers. But in Maryland, I don't think there are too many outstanding questions when it comes to races and ballot questions. I think we can make pretty educated guesses, even though we don't have all of the votes. And so, Michael, what are you seeing when it comes to Maryland state and local election results? I don't think there's much of a surprise. Right. I mean, if if you're dialing in to a late week podcast thinking we're going to break some fantastic and exciting news about what happened within Maryland from this election, uh, you're deeply misguided because there's no gigantic news here. People are interested in margins of this and that and so forth. But we, we're not we're not pacing and walking on eggshells waiting for the final ballot to see whether one thing here or there. There might very well be some down ballot issues that I'm not thinking of, some school board issues and so forth that are that close. But in the main, our congressional representatives will remain intact. Uh, the ballot questions seem to have been decided by pretty broad margins and nobody's going to be shocked by much of anything that happened within the state of Maryland. We'll talk about it, uh, but that's not really the highlights. Yeah, so, I mean, these are obviously unofficial results, but Brandon Scott seems like he will be the youngest mayor in Baltimore City history. Bill Henry will end up serving as the next city comptroller. Mago President Sharon Green Middleton has won her bid for re-election in District 6. Woo! 
And then all the Democrats that won their primary and are uncontested, they all look to be in great shape, too. Right. I, I guess, I mean, you have two, you have both Brandon Scott and Bill Henry who leave the city council to take on, um, you know, citywide roles in, in their respective stations. So that's kind of a big deal transitioning for the, for the city. Obviously, a new mayor and a mayoral administration is, is big news. Um, you know, relatively substantial turnover on on the council. It's it's going to end up being six of 15 votes on the council. Uh, if you include, I guess, Nick Mosby uh, coming in as as a citywide winner of the race for council president. So six of 15 votes is a relatively meaningful change on the city council, even if it's not party to party the way. A lot of America watches elections. Just uh, you know, new new voices and new ideas will mean some change there. You have to think. Yeah, a lot of churn there. Obviously, some new perspectives coming in. No doubt about that. And the other uh, county that had a countywide race, Cecil County. Danielle Hornberger looks like she has a strong lead in the general election for Cecil County Executive. We had two incumbents there: Bob Methley in District One and Jackie Gregory in District Five. Both were uncontested in the general election, and it looks like they will also retain their seats. That's a quick run through, Michael and Drew, of countywide election races. Not much to report here if, when it comes to anything surprising, but I think it's important to, to run through where things stand in those two jurisdictions. And then, of course, we had some statewide ballot questions. I think there was a lot of attention here. So, Michael, we talked last month with former state senator P.J. Hogan about question one which beginning with the budgets that are cast after the next state election, so this will not affect Governor Hogan, would grant the General Assembly more authority in the creation of each year's operating budget. It looks like voters are overwhelmingly endorsing this measure. Any surprise there? I don't think it's a surprise. Um, because it's a constitutional amendment, you have two things that matter. The, the actual wording of how the Constitution will read after the fact, but what also matters is the brief summary that in Maryland is prepared by the Secretary of State, and that actually appears on people's ballots. So I'm sure a small number of voters decided to do all of their homework and read the, the new language for the Maryland Constitution line by line to, to, pay, you know, to, to decide what to do. Uh, but I think a lot of people, most people, the overwhelming share of people, sort of, you know, fill out their ballot by reading the summary, and it talks about a balanced budget process and so forth. Uh, not every single Marylander listens to the Conduit Street podcast and had the benefit of hearing that lively conversation with P.J. Hogan and where this comes from and the issues of 100 or so years ago that got things written the way they are. So uh, no surprise that people voted for it. I think that's going to be a recurring theme as we talk about both state and local ballot questions. Yeah, let's put a pin in that because I definitely want to talk about how voters deal with ballot questions, both at the state and the local level. And then the second ballot question here, this is sports wagering. This would require a constitutional amendment because of specific language in a prior amendment regarding slots and casino table games. This would authorize in-state sports wagering. It looks like voters overwhelmingly endorse this one, too. I don't think this is a surprise either. So this was a... It was kind of a weird circumstance. Uh, we've seen the General Assembly 
debate how a sports wagering setup might look in Maryland. And we've seen a variety of bills that were really specific. You can do it at these facilities, but not these other places, et cetera, et cetera. And ultimately, the General Assembly decided, let's just put the general question before the voters first. And if it's approved by the voters, we'll then come back and do the implementation that would have to follow. So that's kind of a peculiar circumstance. Now the voters have said, yes, let's go ahead. The General Assembly now needs to pass a bill to say, here's how Maryland is going to do it. And I, I think that has the potential to be somewhat contentious. I mean, I'm sure if you operate a casino right now, you'd like to be able to put a facility there like you know, like uh, Las Vegas casinos have, and I'm sure others in some of our surrounding states have. Um, but what if you have a horse racing track or, um, you know, what, what if you just have a drugstore? Would you like to be able to have a little station there where people can sit down and do this? Or can you fill out tickets at a lottery station or whatever? Um, can you do it through an app or through online as long as you can document that you're within the state of Maryland? I think a bunch of unanswered questions there about exactly who and how, um, you know, runs the show once we're going to have a show. Yeah, I certainly agree. And I do think it's interesting when, you know, way back when, when we had slots and, and table games, there was really specific questions about where these slots would be located. People were able to look and see, okay, this is where they're going to go. Here's what this landscape will look like. As you said, they decided to do it differently this time. And I certainly agree. There will be a lot of lively debates. Uh, you know, we've seen in the past few sessions, the, the casinos come in and say they want to operate these sports book at, the, at their casinos. You've seen the, the big DraftKings and FanDuel types saying, we can do it. We'll geofence in Maryland. Only Maryland residents will be able to use this service. And certainly, you know, you see Kino machines all over the place. You see them in, in local bars and whatnot. Maybe they're going to want a piece of this action too. So it will be now up to the General Assembly to decide how to implement the will of Marylanders when it comes to sports wagering. But ultimately here, the central idea, Michael, is look, People are betting on sports right now, and the revenue is not staying in Maryland. Other states are, are, are soaking up this revenue. We've seen D.C. implement sports wagering, other surrounding states. So the whole idea here is we want to keep sports wagering tax revenue in Maryland, and we want to dedicate it to education, right? That's the plan. This is yet another funding source for the state's education trust fund, which is one of the drivers that the state will be counting on to live up to these ambitious commitments under the Kerwin plan to, to fund education, to bring us, you know, for a new generation of educational outcomes for all of our school kids. So uh, we're going to need revenues for that. And this is one component, not the answer. It doesn't fund the entire plan. This isn't it. But this is one more piece of that puzzle. Right. One more piece of the puzzle. That's the idea. The General Assembly will figure out how to implement this. We'll see how that goes. We also had a number of county-specific ballot questions. And before we get into this, it's important, I think, to point out that this really only applies to the charter counties in Maryland. Drew, you wrote a really good piece on the Conduit Street blog summarizing the status of each county ballot question. Again, we don't have the full set of results, but I know you've been updating your blog piece. And so we know this is only applicable to charter counties. So that means that not every county had a ballot question on the ballot. Is that correct? Yes. So there was 15 counties that didn't have questions. That blog piece took so much of my time, but I do think it's really <laughs> important. It has some really great information on there. You can see everything all in one page. We'll link that piece in the, in the show notes. And, and Michael, why don't you kick us off 
we'll talk some of the more high-profile questions maybe. I know a lot you've been watching. Kick us off here. What do you want to get into first? I'd say let's start. I mean, you mentioned high-profile. So I, I feel like the highest-profile issues were actually a couple of topics that had competing ballot questions in Montgomery County, the most populous jurisdiction in our state. Uh, Montgomery County had a series of four ballot questions, which were basically pairs of different ways to go regarding the county's tax limitation, and then also different ways to go with the structure of the county council and how residents are represented through their sort of, you know, their their legislative body in county government. So uh, a lot of back and forth on those issues with a lot of stakeholders weighing in, a bunch of advocacy. I feel like this was the most hotly contested of all the county ballot questions. The stuff in Montgomery drew a lot of attention and to some degree, some ire. So let's start there. Um, questions one and two dealt with property taxes. Uh, you know, Kevin, that's that's an area that you followed. Um, we had competing ideas with what to do on property taxes in Montgomery County. Right. So when it comes to the property taxes, I mean, let's first talk about property tax caps, right? And Michael, let, you know, we don't want to get too wonky here, but essentially Montgomery County has a limit on the amount of revenue that can be generated through property taxes. And that limit is tied to the previous year as well as inflation. We call this a revenue cap. Right. I mean, I, I agree with you. This is one of those opportunities that we could sort of steer this thing into the weeds and get really, really thick with complicated tax policy. And while I'm always tempted to do that, um, maybe discretion will be wise here. So instead, we'll just say in Maryland, like in lots of places, there's sort of two flavors of how you can put a limit on property taxes in your county charter. The county charter works more or less like a constitution. The United States has the constitution. The state of Maryland has a constitution. County governments in Maryland, their organizing document is a county charter, works basically the same way. When you change it, you have to go to the voters for approval. And you can put tax limits in a county charter. The two ways to do that are basically you can limit the tax rate and basically say the rate must stay at a certain level and can't can't go above a certain level. So the, the, the rate you pay per hundred dollars of value of your property, you know, via your assessment, that's one way to do a tax limit. The other way is to do it based on the revenues that the government expects to achieve from applying their tax rate. And if you limit that, you can end up having a downward pressure on the rate itself if there's growth in the tax base. So there's two different ways to do this without getting too super wonky. It's sort of about, do you want to let the government have the ability to keep up with changes in the cost of living? Right. I think that's a, it's a great way to, to frame this. So the current system doesn't cap tax rates directly, but does impose a cap on the overall amount of property tax revenue the county can take in. That cap is tied to inflation. Council members can exceed the cap, but doing so also requires a unanimous vote by all nine council members. Question A would overhaul the current system for limiting property tax increases in the county. Rather than a cap on overall revenue, under question A, the actual property tax rate would be limited to the previous year's rate unless all nine members of the council voted to increase it. So overall, under the current system, the council has to set the property tax rate each year to make sure that the county doesn't exceed the overall revenue cap. 
And so, Michael, you mentioned there were two competing proposals here. Question B would stick with the current system for capping property tax revenue, but would make it impossible for the county council to approve any increases above the rate of inflation. So, Drew, how are we looking in Montgomery County when it comes to these competing proposals? How are things looking for question A? So, obviously, these are unofficial results. They don't have the provisional votes in yet, but there's over 190,000 votes for this. It does look like it's going to pass. This is accurate as of 12.52 on November 5th. Doesn't seem like it's going to change. Seems like it will pass. The competing proposal, Michael, then looks like it will fail. Right. So so it probably makes sense. We focus on question A. This is what appears like it's going to go into the Montgomery County Charter. And, and that will basically say Montgomery County should have predictability in its tax rate. So um, it will basically create a tax cap in Montgomery County that looks really similar to the one that exists in Prince George's County, um, right next door, another large jurisdiction. Uh, so, so that charter will basically say the tax rate needs to stay flat as opposed to having a really convoluted calculation of expected revenues and what's in and what's out. So it will, I think, simplify. And I, in, in my judgment, I think it also maybe aligns the tax limitation with people's intuition and common sense. The idea that your tax rate will stay flat is something people can understand, I think. So sticking with Montgomery County, there were also two competing ballot questions regarding the composition of the county council. Right now, the council consists of nine members. Under question C, the number of district seats on the council would have grown from five to seven, and the number of at-large seats would remain unchanged at four. That would expand the overall size of the council from nine to 11 members. This proposal looks like it will pass. Then there's competing question D, which is supported by a citizen's initiative, which proposes even more dramatic changes to the council. Question D would do away with all of the council's at-large seats in favor of nine single-member districts, and that looks like it will fail. And then looking around, there were there was one in Baltimore County asking voters to consider public campaign financing. There was Baltimore City um, asking about city process reforms. So there's quite a wide range. I, I think uh, a, a whole lot of things are, are interesting here. I mean, one, one I would poke at is um, Baltimore City had a number of, yeah, process reforms is a good way to, to characterize it, you know, an umbrella of things that the outgoing count, the city council had a real interest in, including the former council president, incoming mayor, Brandon Scott, uh, made a lot of uh, made a lot of hay about wanting to add transparency and so forth to process. So uh, changes in process for contracts and other things like that, including the city's board of estimates. If you if you listen to the podcast, you've heard us talk about the state of Maryland has the board of public works that sort of oversees contracts and spending and so forth over the course of the year. The Baltimore City has the board of estimates, that's wor which works largely the same way, and. The, the constitution and body, you know, the members of the Board of Estimates are going to change and broaden and shift. That's that's a, a deliberate outcome of, I think, the, the, the last council. And the, the voters went along with those proposed changes. Um, if, if I can, I'd also mention up in Cecil County, in addition to having election for their local officials, they had an amendment to their county charter 
to, to sort of untangle what had been a tricky and maybe legally thorny matter of uh, what are the what are what kind of what kind of employment might disqualify you from serving on the county's legislative body as a county council representative and uh, there were back and forth legal views on this question during the last term for a variety of reasons the voters got uh, got an opportunity to clarify this and settle this and basically i mean my reading of this is the the new language that's going to go in the county charter says as long as you're not like under the supervisory control of the county government the executive or the or the council then it's okay if you happen to have employment that's tangentially connected to county government or to the county budget I, in my judgment i think they struck a reasonable balance there There truly was just such a wide range from large issues to small bond questions considered in all the charter counties. And I think my biggest takeaway here is just, wow, there are so many things that counties need to get voter approval to do. Like this was way more than the usual election cycle, but just wow. I think that's fair. Like the the analogy that these are like constitutional amendments we 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 think of the United States Constitution and and you know we can almost count on our fingers and toes the total number of times the US Constitution has been amended but here we end up with county i mean several counties had six or eight or 10 you know multiple items uh, i mean we're all we're all voters in Anne Arundel County do you remember getting that first look at your Anne Arundel County ballot it was just like a a, a page and a half of text of all these different things and some of them felt like picayune little stuff. Forgive me for saying so, but you know we're going to change the dollar threshold for what sort of a contract has to go through this kind of a process from this many dollars to that. It's like I mean, I mean, okay, it sounds fine, but really, you need me? Yeah, and and I know I'm sure both of you are in the same boat. I have a lot of people calling me leading up to the election saying, "What does all this mean, and what should I be doing when it comes to to these charter questions?" But Look, the bottom line, and I think this is an interesting topic, every single ballot question across the counties, except for the competing questions in in Montgomery County, so let's put those aside for a second, every single one, I believe, passed. So, Michael and Drew, I'd like to get your thoughts. Does that mean anything? Does that say anything to you about how voters approach these ballot questions? I mean, everything passes. Are voters mostly just saying yes? I mean, I think most people probably don't take the time to read through all of this prior to getting to the poll or mailing in their ballot to understand all the intricacies of some of these questions. And and some of them, you know, they're quite lengthy and, and they're hard to understand. What does this say to you all about how voters approach these questions and, and what they do when they actually cast their ballot? So personally, I think about it, I think of the average person probably looking at it thinking, well, I elected my officials, they're likely coming up with these questions. If they think it's a good idea, they're the ones asking for it, then yeah, let's do it. I think that's probably pretty fair. I, I mean, on a, on a certain level, I think I, I look at my ballot with the assumption that if this proposal were a problem, somebody would have rung my bell. There would have been something in the local paper or I'd be hearing about it on the radio or it'd be, you know, somebody would have talked to me and said, by the way, this question five in Anne Arundel County, boy, that's a big problem. You should vote against that. And here's why. And I don't know. I don't know if this makes me an irresponsible voter, but to some degree, I read these things with a little bit of common sense. But I keep in mind, 
hey, if nobody yelled and screamed about this along the way, then it's probably fine. And as long as it sounds okay to me, I'm willing to vote for him. I, I voted for the ballot questions in Anne Arundel this go round. And I think other people I know did as well for similar reasons. I agree with both of, of your assessments there. And again, I just think most people don't take the time. Most people are focused on some of the more high profile races. Of course, we had the, the race for U.S. president that drew a lot of attention. Some of these, these countywide races. But yeah, so many ballot questions, and I think people just get overwhelmed you know, in certain circumstances. We had a lot of questions on the Anne Arundel ballot. Anne Arundel was not unique there. Other charter counties had a similar amount of questions. So that all makes sense to me. Drew and Michael, we've covered county races here in Maryland. We've covered some of the county-specific ballot questions. And again, we will post all of these links. We've had a lot of coverage on the Conduit Street blog. I'm intrigued to get your sense of what you've been watching across the country. There are so many high-profile issues that other states have on their ballots, and a lot of this, I think, will come back to Maryland in terms of the focus of our policymakers. A lot of times we see when other states do something, it opens up the door for Maryland or or other states to, to follow that lead. So, Michael and Drew, what are you watching? What are you intrigued by when it comes to other initiatives, other ballot initiatives in other states? Drew, I'll start with you. Hmm. So I think definitely the multiple states approving adult use cannabis, all four who had it on their ballot, plus D.C. doing mushrooms. That definitely, I think, leads to kind of a useful conversation that Maryland could do this sometime soon, either on the ballot potentially or maybe just through legislation, but definitely thought it was interesting. It seems like one of those issues that the voters are prepared for almost no matter the political contours, right, of the state. This isn't this isn't purely like a, you know, this kind of state is the one who's doing this and that sort of thing. You know, Voters seem to approve it. Um, we've had at least one state has just passed adult use cannabis through the state legislature. I've lost track if it's more than one, but as I recall, at least one Midwestern state, Illinois maybe, um, just did it through legislation. Right. So maybe that's the next wave. I don't know what Maryland has planned there, but I don't think this is that far off. Right. And I mean, look, we, we've talked with our friend Malia Cromer from the Goucher Poll when they ask this question, Marylanders, the, the overwhelming majority seem to approve whether or not this is on the 2022 ballot or whether or not, as you mentioned, Michael, I think Illinois opened the door for states to do this just through legislation. We'll have to see. But I agree. We've heard a lot of talk about this in, in previous sessions. And, and so this is certainly something that's on the table here in Maryland. The polling seems to to show that Marylanders would approve. It's just a matter of when this happens, I think, not if, and how they do it, whether or not they put it to the voters or they do it through legislation. Michael, I'll go to you next. What's something that you're interested in that you've been watching maybe in another state? You can count on me to find something impossibly complicated and difficult to describe, but I'll, I'll, I'll try and water this down a little bit. The, the Western states uh, tend to have the direct citizen initiative process, and that puts a, a lot of kind of quirky things into state law because it sounds good in a quick summary. Uh, Colorado is one of those states and it affects property taxes. Like sort of to cut this story short, without a change that was proposed on the ballot this year, the local governments in Colorado would have found themselves basically strangled and dying for revenue. And 
it's tough to make the case that you're going to lose a lot of important public services, that, that things like public safety and being prepared for a public health crisis like the one we're in the middle of, that those things are so important that even though you liked having a living on taxes, we're going to ask you to change that for the sake of benefiting local services. Uh, voters in Colorado heard that message and changed the state limitation. Basically, they heard the call from local governments. They agreed that those local services were important, and they wiped out the state law that was looming to do a whole bunch of damage in Colorado. So for those of us who are worried about local governments and services as we try and you know, maintain this relationship with the feds and, and, and more, more help for local governments and so forth during this fiscal crisis. Um, I'm interested in the Colorado case study that they were successful saying, you've got to come to the aid of these local services. It's important. And voters said, you're right, we're going to do that. Yeah, that one is really interesting to me because, you know, maybe COVID played a big role here. But as I recall, I think the, the homeowners in Colorado would have gotten a huge property tax break if they wouldn't have approved this this amendment. So it's interesting. They heard the call from local governments, as you said, Michael. I think, again, they've watched local governments step up amidst the, the COVID-19 pandemic, and they realize the importance of these services. So good job in Colorado by the, the state and local governments making their case. Voters ultimately approved. And for me, California's Proposition 22, this one looks likely to pass. And this all has to do with allowing rideshare companies and delivery apps such as Uber and Lyft to classify their drivers as independent contractors. I will say there are some benefit concessions here, but independent contractors instead of employees. And again, we've talked a lot about this and the ramifications, but there was a ton of money spent by both sides of this issue. Obviously, if you classify these folks as employees, a lot comes with that, including benefits. It puts a lot more emphasis on Uber and Lyft to provide more benefits and more protections for these employees. But Californians approved Proposition 22. And again, it allows Uber, Lyft, and other rideshare delivery apps to classify their employees as independent contractors. Essentially, Uber and Lyft say, look, we're not their employer. All we do is provide the app. People dial up the app. They get a car to come pick them up. The person who is driving that car is not our employee. We only provide the service. So, Michael, this is a big one. We have talked again about it. We know it's going to be a big issue moving forward nationwide. California has a reputation for sort of setting precedent through these ballot initiatives. What do you think about this one? Are you surprised by the result? I, I, I know there was an awful lot of money spent on campaigns, both for and against this question in California. It's one thing that we, we talked a little bit with, with our, our counterpart from, from the California State Association of Counties on the podcast several weeks ago. He had mentioned this as one of the topics they had been, they had been watching as well. Um, you know, like when, we, when you say it, uh, is somebody classified as an independent contractor? It kind of misses what's important about that. Like if you're if you're running the company Lyft, you're saying like, how am I supposed to ensure that a person makes minimum wage? How am I supposed to give somebody sick leave for a job when I don't set what her schedule or hours or you know responsibilities are? Someone decides to you know work through my platform and work this one hour and then take seven days off and then work 18 hours over the next three days. 
that's her decision. I don't control that. How am I supposed to give somebody a day off based on what? I don't have a schedule to do that. Those are the kind of things that we heard from the, the you know the platforms saying we're really not employers. Uh, I think it's a tricky issue. A lot of people have sympathy for the people who are part of the gig economy and they don't want them to be overrun by big corporations. But at the same time, the nuts and bolts of saying this is an employee and the employee is entitled to this long list of benefits just like a you know, conventional so-called employee. Um, those are tricky issues. So, you know, whatever whatever the, the the political leanings in California are, this was an interesting issue. And the companies were all but saying, we'll pick up and leave the state if we can't operate and let people just do their gigs. So that, that had to be part of it, too. Yeah, they, they were saying that. And it's interesting, too, that voters approving this question actually supersedes a new law that was passed in California that was intended to grant these drivers full employment, which would include, as you mentioned, minimum wage protection, health care, unemployment, sick leave. So really interesting here. There was a big push, and it looks like Californians have said, we like our Uber and Lyft services. We don't want them to pack up and leave the state. And maybe they did buy into that argument, Michael, of, look, how are we supposed to, to make sure that these types of benefits are provided when we don't set the schedules. We don't know these people. They kind of work whenever they want. This is the gig economy. But intriguing to me because it's going to have ramifications all over the place. And again, this is California, and they are setting sort of a precedent for the rest of the country. No surprise there. But Michael, any other closing thoughts or Drew before we wrap up here today? I would commend to our listeners, give a read through Drew's article, both both the one before the election and following the election on all the county ballot questions. We touched on just a handful of them here, but that's an interesting perusal of the big lane for voters to have direct, you know, direct decision making through charter county government. It's I don't know. It's an instructive way to spend 15 minutes of your time, I think, worth, worth your while. Thanks, Michael. And I don't have anything to add, but thank you guys for having me on again. At this point, I feel like maybe I'll see you guys next week. (laughs) Yeah, you've become uh, a regular here, and we really appreciate you being with us. And again, I agree with Michael. Great coverage on the blog. I will link all of our election coverage. Again, we have a ton of it on the Conduit Street blog. We'll put all of that in the show notes. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and of course, the Conduit Street blog. But for Michael and Drew, this is Kevin signing off, and we will talk to you soon.